They are. Yeah? They are. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Good. So, so whereabouts are you living? I live um, just outside the city of Salzburg, a oh. village called Grudig. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm just I'm just adjusting our uh, audio levels. Man, I'm glad you, you reached great. out when you saw that. Uh, what's that? You sound great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, what audio equipment will do for you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you reached out when you uh, saw the equipment that I got for Christmas. Yeah. It's like, why not? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know what? This is great because, uh, you know, I'm. everybody's going to hear this for the, I think, the 11th time now. I've always had great conversations with people, and I was like, this should be part of a podcast. So I guess Sean got tired <laughs> tired of me saying that, and she bought me all this uh, audio equipment for Christmas. So, nice. Yeah, yeah, and it's, and it's set up. I have two mics, two sets of headphones, and that sort of stuff. And, yeah, it's set uh, up for the, the one-to-one. Yeah, and then, thankfully, the mixer is all set up to take in put any input into it whether it be a hardwired phone bluetooth phone computer yeah. you name it and i can run like nice. four mics and four sets of headphones off it and that sort of stuff so sweet so anyways i think i've got everything all set up just gonna get cool. you a little louder and uh then we can get rolling Yo, crew, welcome back to the Skipper Report. Today, we have a special guest who is enjoying a beer, and I have not seen him for about two years. So we have Corey Snyder. Are you still the captain of the U.S. Telemark team? I'm retired. No, are you? Yeah. How long have you been retired? Just this past season. Oh, breaking news, breaking news on the Skippy Report. (laughs) So tell me who you are, Corey, so people know who you are. Well, as already mentioned, I'm Corey Snyder from the good old United States of America, now residing in the wonderful Salzburg, Austria. And I was a longtime member of the U.S. Telemark team, former team captain, a couple-time national champion, and... Now just, dude. Are are you still in school? Yeah. Yeah. Still in school. Yeah. <laughs> How many years is this since kindergarten? Twenty uh, five. Take it consecutive. It's twenty three years. Twenty three years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because you started your undergrad in Utah, correct? No, I started. I did my undergrad in New Hampshire. Oh, okay. Six oh three. Yep. And did my master's out in Montana. Okay. And now I've, you know, going to add a few more letters to the back of the name here right. in Austria. That's right. why I came here. Ah, okay. The uh, the pile as as a farmer, it's a, the maybe these letters the acronym is right. It's like piled higher and deeper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so you've got the the bachelor of shit, <laughs> the master of shit, and yep. then the piled high deep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so hey. Uh, so tell us about your background. You're from New Hampshire. From New Hampshire, born and raised, good old Sugar Hill, a place no one's ever heard of. I have because... No relation to the place in New York City. Or the Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah. Uh, but the there's, a, there's, there's, a pan, there's a pancake place there that's pretty world famous. There is. The old Polly's Pancake Parlor. And is it still open as far Can't as you know? miss it. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. All right. And if you show up early, you yes. get a discount. No way. You show up right when you, right when you, right when they open at like I think they open at seven. Right. If you get there before seven thirty, they give you like a five percent discount. Right. So, um, Sugar Hill is near which large city? I I know, but the listeners wouldn't know. Town. I guess the largest, largest like near city. It's probably almost a draw between Montreal and Boston. Okay. Like halfway in between. All right. And and towns. I mean, the town nearest town would be Franconia, which maybe people know from a little famous ski racer named Bodie Miller. That's right. Uh, that's probably it's pretty close to like Plymouth, New Hampshire. Yep, that's cool because you know what, my great grandfather's from Bethlehem. No way. Well, actually, he was born in St. Johnsbury, and somehow right. uh, moved down to Bethlehem, and he was a fireman in a 
wood mill way back in the day. Yeah. No yeah. way. Yeah, way, man. <laughs> yeah. We've got connections. Yeah, maybe, eh? So and then uh he was in the he was in the military and uh I guess he got in a little bit of trouble and figured it was best to hightail it north of the border. <laughs> Smart guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of cool. So, um, where'd you grow up skiing? Cannon? Yeah. Yeah. Thoroughbred, Cannon skier. My parents used to drop me off, get rid of me in the morning. They'd be like, all right, here's 10 bucks for lunch. Don't get hurt. Pick you up at four. Right. We hear stories about to... all the hardcore skiers. That's what their parents did, yeah. right? And your parents yeah. didn't ski or they did that and they went off to no. work or my, my mom skied. We actually got into telemark at the exact same time. Really? So my, my, my dad's brother, my uncle, he got me into telemark and he, I don't know, maybe I was like six or seven. Wow. He was like, you know, kid, you're not a real skier unless you try telemark. Right. I was like, sold. Let's do yeah. this. Give me yeah. some gear. So he set me up on some, some of his wife's, like leather boots and three pins, some old K2 team comps, wow. junior edition. And me and my mom went out in, in uh, what's the, the balsam? Ever heard of the balsam? Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite places to ski because yeah. nobody's ever heard of it. And you no can, I know, yeah. like if there's 20 cars in the parking lot, they consider that a rocking day. That's a rock and roll day. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we used to go on vacation to the balsams. Oh no way! It was still an operating hotel. Yeah, that's where we you went and got like your table man. Break. That's where you went and got your yeah. table manners for Europe, I guess, eh? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, didn't stick. Can tell you that for sure. <laughs> well, because you're a telemark skier, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I I found that place, and my cottage isn't far from there. Maybe uh, a leisurely hour, and. Uh, yeah. I learned the trick that if you go to the grocery store during midweek and you buy some stuff on the back of their receipt tape, they had two for one skiing at the balsam. So we would always hit the grocery store no before way. we, oh yeah. So the whole family would nice. go skiing for about $30 US. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and like, I think, you know, normal price isn't much higher than that. No, no. It's dirt cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind of cool. Cause you know, and I got to meet some of the guys from the new England telemark crew there. Yeah, there was a, there was used a, to have a Telemark festival. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's too bad that that place is closed down because, uh, yeah, I loved going there and skiing. It's just a, it, every ten years somebody tries to buy it and open it up and right. Just like Northern New Hampshire is a tough place to get something going off the ground right now. It's it's out there too. Yeah, it's beautiful out oh, there. Oh, it's gorgeous. Everybody is out there. Right through Dixville Notch. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I guess that's the draw drive north from boston five hours into the middle of nowhere and oh yeah trees, hundreds of thousands hills, of acres mountains. of forest yeah it's incredible yeah. yeah we go through there go through dixville notch on our way to uh sunday river all the time mm -hmm. yeah i remember the last time i went nice with some drive. friends was uh i think it was it was in our spring break and it was daylight savings times that it switched or maybe it was around easter and i i think somebody had taken their winter tires off a little too early. Because <laughs> as we're going up through, we were the second vehicle going up through the notch after a snowstorm. And the guy went well off the road and then back onto the road. And he yeah. stayed on the road. And as he was going up through the notch past the balsams, he started pinballing off the uh, guardrails. Yeah. yeah, and then once he started descending, it got worse than that. And ho and I, we yeah. don't we don't know how he got out because we couldn't see the tracks or or anything. Yeah, it's just it was insane. It was either wow. it was either that or he was driving home drunk and his wife was beating on him in the passenger seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I just just on the phone with my folks and they said it snowed yesterday. Yeah. So. We we oh, had we still got our snow tires on here. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I have one vehicle because it's lightweight. It's a VW Beetle. It's still got winter tires on. We were up at my daughter's place on Friday night, and it snowed up there. And I know Tabby Friedman said she got clobbered with snow down in Dover, Vermont. I, down southern Vermont, they get sneaky large amounts of snow. They do, and I, I just, out of nowhere, got to no be lakes. the elevation, I guess. It's not so high though. 
they just have a clear shot from somewhere, funneled into them, and they get hit. Yeah, because they got hit insanely early this year, too. So have you been home lately? <laughs> I haven't been in the U.S. for a year, almost two years now. Two years. Yeah, we were there. Me and my girlfriend, it was her first time in the U.S. We went in July right. 2018. And we planned to go again. Yeah. And the old situation happened. And now it's like she can't she can't actually get into the U.S. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and how is uh, the COVID response being over in the EU? In the beginning, it was really good. So, I mean... In, in March 2019, whatever, there were, I guess, they were pretty, or I guess 20, 2020, yeah, sorry. Like midway through March, hard lockdown. Right. And in that time, I think in Austria, there were like 50 cases. Austria has about 9 million people. Uh, a hard lockdown. And I think like the seven-day incidents never got above 50. Wow. Came back down, slow, gradual opening steps, good summer, nothing happened. And then in the fall, you know, it started to ramp up again, ramp up, ramp up. Then there was, again, hard lockdown. But the second round, like, nobody really followed the rules. Right. It was like, it's, you know, it's, un- it's unenforceable. Yeah. As soon as, you know, 20 businesses keep their things going. I mean... Like the things that had to be closed were closed. Right. So like during the lockdowns, you couldn't go shopping. You still can't go to a restaurant. Restaurants have been closed for almost six months. Wow. Yeah. And now it's just, it's been like really herky jerky. Right. So they close open. Now some of the regions start to have like regional lockdowns. Right. Like Vienna in the East, they had a lockdown that ends tomorrow. It seems to be getting again under control, but then they do things like everything's going to open on May 19th. Right. Oh, geez. It's like, okay, well, how's, how's that going to go? Right. Yeah. I know we've been in lockdown. Uh, the same, the same from the very beginning as, as where you are as most countries. And, yeah. uh, then they, uh, opened up and, um, especially with ski season, uh, the Hills were getting their, uh, regiment all organized and that sort of stuff. And then our conservative government decided, no, we're going to have a lockdown on December 26th. Yeah, so, same here. Yeah. And then it was uh, a good month of lockdown, and um, which was insane. You know, like they closed the ski resorts, yet they allowed uh, the cross-country ski resorts to stay open. And the places where there are snowshoeing going on and that sort of stuff. It was, it yeah. was crazy. I'm thankful that my daughter lives uh, 40 minutes east, northeast of me, and she's in what I call 541 acres. She only has one, but she has access to the farmer's property because she maintains it. Yeah. So we're able to go wow. out there and cross-country ski and snowshoe yeah. and, and nice. that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, and we you only... Know, in in go, Austria, it's the <clears> home of skiing, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, it's the national sport. Right. And so there was really intense lobbying from the lift companies. And so the lifts, actually, lift companies opened on December 26th and had a full season. Wow. But all the hotels were closed. Right. The borders were all closed. Yeah. This is the most epic ski season I have ever had. Wow. That's Because awesome. there was just no one. Right. You know, massive resorts intended to serve 30,000 people, and there were 5,000. Wow. That's crazy. And and good for the locals. Yeah. I know that's like no money in it. No, no. Our local river, which is North American renowned for salmon and rainbow trout run, has been closed. They closed it last season. I'm thankful because we get people from all over eastern Canada and the northeast in the US. Mm-hmm. But the borders are closed, so Americans couldn't get here. I could see people starting to come just before fishing season open and i was like oh man this is going to be intense but then the town closed it all down they've they've marked off the shores of the river so you can't get past it well you can but it's like a police Mm -hmm. tape sort of thing and uh if if you're caught there the cops they're patrolling it they're gonna ticket you it's like 500 and some odd bucks and uh even ticketing people from that was one good fish 
Yeah. <laughs> yep. So the, they've closed down the season again this year. So you know what? Uh, the season fishing's gonna gonna be really good in the next couple of years. It's be pretty good. So uh, tell us a little bit about wow. your background. So you started telemark skiing when you were six years old. And, seven. But oh, seven. Counting. Yeah. Okay. And how'd you get into racing? Again, my my uncle. He uh, he had a, his best friend in high school was this guy named Chris Rice. Okay. Maybe you've heard of him. No. He's a uh, he uh, he was an American telemark ski racer, raced okay. World Cup in the in the days of Reed Saban, who was the last American to win a World Cup overall. Now, would that be like in the eighties? This would have been in the well. Chris, he raced when he was older. Okay. So this would have actually been in the late nineties, early two thousands. Okay. All right. So he was in his you know early forties, late thirties, and uh, he's like, yeah, I got this this buddy I went to high school with who was like a World Cup telemark racer. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. This exists. I had no idea. And we looked it up online. You know, we, me and my mom had been going to New England telemark festivals already for a couple of years. Right. Because uh, it was cool. You know, like you show up at a mountain. Yeah. A couple hundred telemark skiers. You demo gear. Yeah. You get lessons. It was awesome. Yeah. I, I had like the lucky finger in the lottery. So I think the first two years my mom and I went to these things, I won – Pair of like targas, nice. Pair of voiles, couple right. pairs of hammerheads. Like I won bindings everywhere. Nice. It's like wild. I think I got to go to one of their last festivals when I started uh, telemarking. Would have been about ninety ninety eight, ninety nine, I guess. And uh, they were up at J Peak. So oh, yeah, the early season in December. Yeah, and uh, so I had heard that. That year, Cannon Mountain, you show up to the ticket office on the first day and go, I'd like to go skiing, and they give you a ticket. And so I got my lift ticket. I, I skied the day at Cannon, went back to the cottage, went back to J-Peak, went to the New England Telemark Festival. It was awesome, man. It was crazy how many people were there. Yeah. They, it was really a bummer when they stopped being holding events because – Yeah, because the guys – I can't remember the guy's name – uh, that's it. Cause I got some of the cool telemark t-shirts that they have with, uh, yeah. Shay Rivera on it and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, he was a trip. Yeah. He's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was lots of fun. Yeah. And, and I had just gotten into telemark skiing. I started the year before. And, uh, so I, I was like, wow, I don't know where I sign up. I'm, I'm kind of new. And so they gave me some advice where to sign up. And then we went yeah. and did a little ski off I guess I did okay. They took us over to the jet at J, and I was like, mm -hmm. I, I still can't ski this top to bottom. And they said, oh, that's okay. By the end of the day, you will. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost like throw him down the hill and his skis will catch him. Yeah, they'll figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it was wow. awesome. Yeah, but anyway, they, they held a race one year at Gunstock. Okay. Just see it. Uh, I don't know, maybe like 40 minutes south of Franconia. Right. And so I was like, oh, there's a race, there's a race. Mom, I got to go to the race, got to go to the race. You know, right. all fired up and got some gear, had a pair of hammerheads, found a pair of skis from one of my classmates who was a big alpine ski racer. So she had all sorts of skis lying around. Bought a pair of skis off of her and brought my friends, my best friend Sam, his speed suit. I'd never, never really gotten into alpine racing so much. Right. It was totally like wild. Yeah. New sport to me, but I knew I liked it. Yes. And yeah, I chucked down the hill and I, I entered as a citizen class and I won the citizen nice. and would have been, I think, second in the, in the elite division. Right. And I was totally hooked. It was like, you couldn't have, hooked, I couldn't have fallen any harder. That's and, awesome. Uh, what's the Bill, Bill Stein. Oh yeah. There. He um, his son, Brett, raced World Cup, one of the best American World Cup racers of that era. Right. And Bill was like, kid, you're coming with me. We're going to hook you up. We'll get you in U.S. Telemark. You got to get a license. You got to go to nationals. You got to do all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, okay, good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Point me in a direction. Put me in, coach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's all about, like, that's with everything in Telemark. It was all about the people. Oh, yeah. Like, 
Bill told me where to go, who to get, who to, you know, who to find. And he was like, oh, you're from Franconia. Uh, I'll hook you up with this girl, Kelsey Schmitzonger. Uh, she was the best American at the time. She had a whole bunch of World Cup, uh, no World Cup podiums, but she'd been fourth like 15 times that wow. season. And she actually, she, she was born in Franconia. She lives now in Whitefish, Montana. Okay. And that summer, she came out to visit her parents. We went to Polly's Pancake Parlor, and she showed me this slideshow of the World Cup or the World Finals, World Championship, sorry, in Switzerland. She had all these amazing photos. You know, it's like, how could you not? It's like beautiful, sunny Alps. Switzerland. Oh, yeah. And I was just so hooked. Right. That is so, so cool. Then, then I went out to Idaho the next winter for nationals, got my butt whipped. And then the World Cup finals were in, in uh, Sugarbush in Vermont, 2008. Right. And uh, the team captain at the time, Eric Lamb, was like, yeah, yeah, come out, race. Why not? Right. So I raced and met all these Europeans and bought a pair of skis off in Norwegian. Absolutely ripped him off. Absolutely. He was, I mean, it's the World Cup finals after the World Cup, and he was just hammered. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I, I didn't know any different. I was like 15 years old. Right. And I, you know, my uncle had sort of like befriended him through the week and sort of like milked him up. And we were like, yeah, could we buy some skis? And he was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> my mom wrote him a paper check for 400 bucks. Right. Got back to Norway and like couldn't cash it. Couldn't oh, get the money. Jeez. Dead, like so many problems. <laughs> And then he didn't. Then he like he didn't get a ski sponsor the next year, so he had to race the whole next season with only one pair of skis. Oh my goodness! He's like doing all the inspections on like vocal, you know, powder skis. Right. And then I show up at my first like real World Cup the next year with different skis, because I'd switched to NTN and the UST had gotten a Blizzard sponsorship. Right. So I was like all in on this. And I showed up at this World Cup, and he was like, "Where are my skis?" <laughs> What are you doing? Where are my skis? <laughs> like, at least you could be racing on them. Right. That's insane. It was a whirlwind. The yeah. first couple of years were insane. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. So when did you uh, start going over but, to Europe? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I, I went to Europe the first time in 2010. Okay. Uh, it was my senior year of high school. So I, I went to went to Norway. Yeah. Oh, so is that where you met races. Dave? Is that where you met Dave Kilborn? The Canadian guy who was over there was that a rookie? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah, we did with the pink hair and the yeah, glasses yeah, 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 yeah. Glasses. Yeah. 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 Because he always talks that. about you, man. In the in the world telemark or in the telemark world, you're his best buddy. Oh man, I was a I was a 17 year old kid. Wow. Yeah, Dave. I think fun. was like 50 at the time or close to 50. Because I think uh, you, you raced in Lilyhammer too. Or was it just all uh, Rukan? I think, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I think Dave came in the next year, in 2011. Oh, okay. We raced in Hafjell and in Rukan. Okay. And, yeah, he was definitely there in 2011. Yeah. That I, was the year I was in Europe the whole year. Okay. Yeah, I remember how hard he worked to uh, mostly just go over there and experience it. Yeah, but that's uh, the World Cup telemark has definitely changed since then. Oh, has and it? It's definitely for the better as yeah. a sport. Has it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But in when I started, it was very. I mean, there were a few teams that were really professional. Right. But then, like, the rest of the field was not. It's like kids from the U.S., some old Canadian guys, and some weird Slovenians, and then yes. like the teams. Yeah, yeah, I know, because like, a bunch of my friends used to go over there and race. I don't know if you remember the the gate judge that came with me to suicide. You were at Suicide 6, right, for the World Cup yeah. races? Yeah. Unfortunately, I was. <laughs> and he had a big, huge wolf fur coat on the second rainy day at Suicide 6. Wolf, hey, Wolfgang. Maybe. Yeah. I yeah. Have... Yeah, Wolfgang, he, he raced, like, way back in the day. And I think when – I think there were World Cup races way back in the day at Whistler and in, it, in Whitefish – I think yeah, in 2003. My, okay, yeah. So and then, and then like Holly Blevkin, Mark Kinoshita, all I I'm, I'm, I think I can't remember. Those are the people that I know for sure who would travel over to. Uh, that was a very 
very different vibe back then. Yeah, yeah. Now still it's still competitive, still yeah. tight. Now it's more streamlined, more professional. Uh, it's just a higher standard. Right. Yeah. It's exactly. Going on TV. Yes. Yeah, I know it's you too know, the, it's too bad no, we we have to get it through live stream, which at least we can get it. I enjoy Nordic skiing anyway. Yeah. But it's good that it's on live stream. Yeah. Because that really, as soon as every race started to be live stream. Yes. As an athlete, you felt the level get higher and higher and higher. Oh, really? Like, okay, people are like pushing in the summer. There's a lot more training happening. The level is way higher. If if you look at like my like career trajectory, yes, it's a line. Right. I got faster, but everyone else got faster so much faster. Right. So I like, even though I got better as a skier, my yes. relative position never changed. Wow. Wow. So why do you think that's a different, do you think it was because they're like full-time athletes? Some of them? Some of them, yes. Um, a lot of it is just the, like, the fact that there were bigger teams okay. who had access to more. So even the athletes that weren't, extra professional it wasn't their only job right. which is 99.9 percent .9 of telemark athletes now yes anyway you know they were like okay they're all going to the glacier and they're training right. for a week yeah and even if they only get one week of time on the glacier yeah that's like a half a second and then the other guys that got like a full like month on the glacier right. that's like a second and a half right just this time that they got yeah like half the time I would show up at a world cup and like the first day of training would be like my fourth day in gates. Right. Or fifth or right. third. Right. Yeah. I, I know that, uh, you know, the EU, the countries are very close together. I had a friend who studied music in Austria and he, he says like, you can go from East to West in Austria in the same amount of time as it go, it takes to go from Toronto to Montreal. Yeah. And so, you know, accessing glaciers in Europe is way easier way because easier. here in North America, we either have, have to go to Whistler or is it Mount Hood? Mount Hood has, it's not a glacier. It's a summer snow field. Okay. All right. So it, it stays snow there all year round, but it's not actually a glacier. Okay. All right. Yeah. So those basically are the only two places where you can go get summer training. And if you're an East coast athlete, You've got to book it all the way across the continent to do your yeah, training yeah, and cut into your, either your education or your work. Your summer job. Yeah. The summer job you have to pay for your skiing habit. Exactly. Plans for the future in your education, man. I think you and I had a bit of a conversation one day and do you do, is your uh, education in biomechanics or kinesiology? Yeah. So I'm a, I like to call myself a, a general sports scientist. Okay. My my bachelor's, like my undergrad at UNH, they're really focused on clinical exercise science. Right. So that's like cardiopulmonary rehab, cardiopulmonary pathology. Oh, man, I wonder if yeah. you and I studied from the same same textbook because we had an exercise physiology t prof who was an exercise specialist, and I remember our textbooks were actually from – American Journal of Sports Medicine or something like that. And, yeah, and it was ACSM. all about cardiac rehabilitation. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah that and, was like ACSM publishes every year, like guidelines for cardiopulmonary uh, exercise. Right. Prescription. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I figured, I said, this, this course should not be called exercise phys too. It should be cardiac rehabilitation. Yeah. 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 So that was like my undergrad, very clinical focused. Wow, that's intense. And then in Montana, my master's thesis was surprised about skiing. Yeah. Um, and I technically, my degree is in exercise and nutrition science. Okay. But I will be the first to tell you that I did not study nutrition in Montana. Right. <laughs> Beer consumption, maybe? Uh, high. <laughs> well, that's nutrition. High. That's nutrition. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it wasn't an academic study, oh, okay. put it that way. Yeah, it was more of a gut feeling. Right, right. Uh, but I, there I studied definitely more biomechanics, yep. neurophysiology. And now here in Austria, my PhD focuses on uh, development of wearable technology in skiing. Oh, that's so cool. So a bit more in the applied sports science, sports technology. But I'm definitely a biomechanist sports yep. science general. And I actually now 
started working already. Yeah. Uh, I got a job here in Austria at the Red Bull Athletes Performance Center. No way. That's intense. So, yeah. So I work at Red Bull and I'm a, a applied sports scientist and biomechanics. Wow. So I do strength diagnostics, isokinetic training and testing for athletes, motion, motion analysis, running analysis. That is so cool. I, I remember the biomechanics courses I took as part of my phys ed degree in university, and we had lots of fun doing that. Sort of, Our favorite were the labs yeah. where we had to film uh, each other. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, remember, yeah. I remember some of the – when we first started labs and working on each other, this was just in general anatomy and uh, learning about taking blood pressure. And it's like, yeah, well, if you don't find it, don't keep jacking the guy up and releasing it and jacking it. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> And then uh, yeah, that's like all the fun in sports science is all the tests, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And when we had to do VO two max, and uh, I learned, yeah. I learned that uh, you don't want me in an enclosed space when I was in university because when we did vital capacity, it was, it was a little large. Yeah, it was, it was lots, it was, it was lots of fun. I can't remember what the other thing that we did, and then people would like, oh, dude, he's turning blue. We gotta like, you know, get him back. <laughs> You do some Wingate testing or something. Yes. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. They sit on a bike and yep. spin nice and light, and then they drop a bunch of weight. Oh, yeah. As hard as you can. Yeah. The other Anus. thing was uh, the treadmill. I hated the treadmill. It would lower into the ground on us. Yeah, that's kind of cool, man. That's intense that you're, that you're working at Red Bull. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, it's an insane world. I bet it's it so is. so much fun, though. So do uh, – is it – all part of like one big complex because I had a friend go there. Hangar seven. Hangar seven. Okay. Yeah. So is that where you kind of work, or is that in a totally different place? Totally different place. Okay. So you know, Red Bull is a is an Austrian company. The founder, okay. Peter Mat Matuschitz, uh-huh. he's from Salzburg. Okay. And so the like the global headquarters are here. The Red Bull Media House, like the global headquarters, is here. Hangar seven is just like a hangar at the airport. Right. That just happens to have, you know, that's their museum, cool right? Sort of. And then, yeah. Yeah. So like formula one cars are in there. Right. The, um, what's his name? The guy who, the Stratos seven. Oh, Alex Baumgartner. Yeah. Alex Baumgartner or it's somebody Felix Baumgartner. Baumgartner. Yeah. Felix. Felix. That's yeah, it. Felix Baumgartner. Yeah. Yeah. His suit is there. You know, they've got all sorts of, it's, you know the world of Red Bull is yeah it's just so cool. You know what? I, I that guy and we were in a separate facility. Okay, that guy it was intense because I showed that to my kids at school because when I would teach science and we would talk about aerodynamics and hydrodynamics and all that stuff and fluids, but I also told them about the first guy who did it like back in 1959, an American, and I can't remember his name. And yeah. when I was driving down to Florida, uh, 2019. We went down I-75, and I think it was in Cincinnati, I came across the U.S. Air Force uh, Museum. And in there, they had the actual suit that the guy wore when he jumped from high altitude. They had his uh, balloon. uh, It's not a capsule, but it was like an open gantry or, or, or basket or something like that. And I was like... Okay, Baumgartner went up in a in a capsule. He went way up, and he kind of had a spacesuit on, and this guy just had his like Air Force pressure suit and a and a helmet and like just thick, the face thick mask. underwear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He didn't go anywhere wow. near as high as Felix, but I was like, wow, that was intense, man. Those guys that you know worked in the space race and all that sort of stuff back in the day, like they yeah, say, I mean, right? Our our smartphones have more technology than the computers that sent the guys to the moon. Yeah. Oh, they were just, they were, they were crossing their fingers and seeing what happens. Oh yeah. They literally had no idea what they were going into. Yeah. Like this guy going up oh. in his head had to be like, could be the end. Could not be. Exactly. I don't know. And I remember they, they, they were know, monitoring. They were talking about, uh, some Felix's jump. Yeah. No, like in his jump, you know, the suit, he's all wired up. They got his blood pressure live. They got his heart rate. They got his breathing rhythm. They've got all this data. Right. And they're live streaming it, and there's people watching, and they know exactly what's going to happen. Right. This guy's like, they went up, 
And they were like, well, let's see when he comes down. Yeah, exactly. Where he comes down. Yeah. 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 And I, I always remember uh, Felix talking about um, the tumbling that he tried to stay, you know, would want to stay away from. And he actually got into that tumble. And I guess the tumble, yeah. what happens, like, he could have died just during the tumble. Well, he, he was rotating at something like 400 degrees per second. Wow. Know, just tumbling in multiple directions. And right. when you rotate that fast, like... I was going to say it'd be like centrifugal force or centripetal the, the force the, where your blood... The centripetal force is wild. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so, like, You have to be... His physical training before that had to be so intense to like make sure that he can withstand. Right. Being able to do that, his heart is strong enough to yeah. keep pumping. Right, because you know what? When we talk about, you know, you see people talk about pilots and that sort of stuff on TV, and yeah. and how they have to hold their breath, do the Valsalva maneuver, right? When they're pressure yeah, exactly. suits to prevent themselves from, yeah. So if you don't know what the Valsalva maneuver is, when I used to teach this to my shot putting athletes and javelin throwers and stuff, it's like, you know, when you go to the toilet for a bowel movement and you force it out, that's the Valsalva so maneuver. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. So do it in a jet fighter or, or falling from space or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. But you don't do it for one second. You do it for like 10. Minute. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Physics, so, man. Yeah. I love physics. We, we used to teach a little, start the intro to physics in, in the science because I taught middle school. But I would yeah, always man. try to expose the kids to everything. One day my, my principal and vice principal were coming in to see me just to do a quick observation and they walked in and there's guys in squirrel suits on the smart board and they're like, what's this? So I explained to them, I was just showing it to the kids, but I quickly, you know, yeah. started the BS and said, yeah, I'm teaching them about aerodynamics here and uh, fluids. We're in the middle of fluids, right kids? And they're like, yep, yep. They knew it was up. Yeah, they do. Let's see, what else can we talk about? Your experiences on the World Cup. I had to start. Well, we I were talking about when you were 17, 17 or 18 when you spent the whole year in Europe. Yeah, my first, I did two full, well, I've done four, like, big whole World Cup seasons start to finish. Okay. Two at the end and two at the very beginning. Right. And what's wild to me is how similar and different they were. Like, I raced at a whole bunch of the same places. Yes. I raced against a bunch of the same people. Right. I guess I was really, really cool that in my time in the World Cup, there wasn't actually a lot of turnover. You know, there were some old people that retired, and there were some young guns that were kicking my butt when I ended. So did the Lau and brothers, probably, did the Lau brothers, were they competing when you were starting? I got smoked by all three of them. <laughs> They're yeah. beasts. I've seen some They're of their training so cool. videos on uh, on YouTube. Those 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 guys are just pure skiers, right? Like they just like Philippe, especially for me. I never tried to emulate Philippe because I knew I would never be able to. Right. But they have just had so much time on skis, right? And they have such an intimate connection yes. with like their equipment. Yep. Everything is unbelievably dialed in. Like Phil would, I remember one year he, he skied on his brand called Le Croix. Yes, I'm familiar. It's a with custom it. French ski brand. Yep. And they're actually built by Elan. So if you okay. go to the Elan factory, they're building Le Croix skis. Yep. And one year he actually raced on Elan skis. He couldn't get oh, his really? Le Croix. And he was like, his world ranking like plummeted for him from first to fifth. No way. It's like he had such a good dialed in setup and he had it year after year after year after year. Right. And then what's funny is that after that, he actually adapted and you could like, he was like, yeah, I, I can pretty much ski on anything now. Right. Throw it at me. I'll figure it out. Right. But just like the effort with which he could lay down something hard. Yes. You'd watch him ski and be like, that's going to be first. Right. You'd watch him ski another day and you'd be like, yeah, he's not really trying today. Right. It's, it's incredible it's, watching the athletes because I've, I've, you know, on Instagram, on, on my, uh, Skippy Report page. I follow the FIS Telemark page. And, uh, you know, I can see the influence of Ted Ligety. You know, he's got that hand down doing his skivet. And I, I now see Telemark athletes. They're actually carving harder 
around the gates and that sort of stuff when the oh, ski. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's 100% Phil. It's just so cool to watch like the styles evolve. Like for example, Bastian Dyer, he was yep. one of my, when I started, I remember he was, he was 18 in Sugarbush. Right. And he, I was in like taking French in high school and he found out that I talked French and he just. Right. Yeah. Nonstop. And of course now, you know, he's much older. He's got some daughters, he's married and he's still. Oh, really? Yeah. But his style has never changed and he's still one of the fastest in the world. It's just so cool to see. I I always remember when I was uh, helping out at uh, the World Cup races in Vermont and uh angeline i can't remember her last name Angeline Tanbouquet. Tanbouquet. wait and and like she cleared the guy's line one day she couldn't believe it yeah yeah and, and you know what those girls are tiny there's some little ones oh my gosh like jasmine That's... taylor she is petite yeah yeah but don't get in the squat contest with jazz no smoke you oh yeah i bet i bet she is absolutely one of the hardest working in the physical training. Right. The physical preparation, one of the hardest working athletes I've ever met. Really? Wow. Oh yeah. Huh. She is all in. And a lot a lot of the the people who are well, it, it would probably just be the uh, the English team. They spend a lot of time in Europe training and I think Jasmine lives there. I know uh yeah, Lewis Hatchwell in, has in just Germany. moved there. Okay. Yeah. Um we should talk about telemark in the Olympics and why it should be in the Olympics and why the, I'm going to say this, knobs decided not to do it because I was the guy who actually wrote the letter on behalf of the telemark athletes. I know Stefan Perot goes, yeah, we'll do this. And then he goes, hey, Keith, you got to do this. I was like, okay. So right. with uh, Dave Pym, who's the head of our uh, snow sliding association, as I call it, he, 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 <laughs> manages all of the sports and uh yeah presented it it was nice that it got past the fist telemark committee but when it came to the olympic committee i don't know what happened uh, i heard that yeah they want to have more sports but they don't want to have more athletes yeah it comes down to a uh, uh, politics and numbers game the, the 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 sport that they ended up taking they took because they could increase the number of uh, the increase the ratio of women to men, right, and to make it more even, and to include more athletes or more sports without necessarily including more athletes. Right. Yeah. They took, for example, lots of team events and events that were like double down. Right. So like snowboard big air. The yes. snowboard athletes are already at the Olympics. Right. So they could add a few spots to make it a team event. Those probably would go to women. Right. And then you have a more balanced total field without yeah. actually adding so many athletes. Yeah. It's unfortunate because, like, you know, I, I always like to say, you know, uh, free your heel, ski for real. It's the original way to ski until people yeah. started to panic because they were getting too fast and they invented what I call the safety binding. <laughs> yeah. Lock down your heels and you feel a little safer. You know, my yeah. wife is a telemark skier also, but she spends half her time doing alpine turns and the other half doing telemark turns. You know, it's... Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of telemark. You do yeah. whatever you want. My my friend Mark Kinoshita, the bottom of his email, his, his signature says, uh, alpine skiers parallel because they must. Telemark skiers parallel because we can. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is, but it's like, you know, when you see a telemark race, everyone's like, oh, telemark racing? What's that? Exactly. That's weird. Yep. And they see a telemark race, especially now at the parallel. Yes. Like, you can't take your eyes off of it. It's a stadium yeah. event. And, you know, now they've got it dialed in and it runs. It runs smooth. It's fast. It's condensed. You see all of these athletes and you see them absolutely giving everything. Right. So for it's, I'll it's have head to head racing. Right. I'll have a bunch of I'll have a bunch of uh, listeners who don't know what the parallel is. So can you describe the parts going moving down the hill? So we have two athletes going head to head. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to describe Telemark 
as like the ultimate, I have to do the whole thing. You can't just do one event. Telemark is like the triathlon of skiing. Every race has gates, like there is in alpine ski racing, like GS gates. Every race has a jump, like in ski jumping, where you have to jump for distance. Yeah. And every race has skating, like Nordic skating. And so every race has all of these disciplines, and you have to be good at all of them to win. Right. Which is wild that you actually have to be good in all of them. You know, some of the disciplines that's combination, it's like you pretty much just have to be good at one. But not in Telemark. You really have to nail all three. Right. Otherwise, you stand no chance. So there's the classic, which is the one run. It's the, the, the Queen's event, if you will. Long, GS gates, going, going fast. You got to jump for distance. You got to land. You've got more, j- more gates. Then you go into this big 360-degree banked turn, the Rapalusha. It's like a big toilet bowl. Right. You go in one side, you come out the other, and then you've got to skate to the finish. So the classic is like anywhere from two to four minutes, and it's at least 30, minimum of 30% skating. I tell people how long that is. So here in Ontario, we have a youth program that I would take around to ski clubs, and I would, uh, I would cross-train alpine athletes hoping to poach some kids and get them mm-hmm. to telemark and that sort of stuff. And when I would tell their coaches and show them a video while we're on the chair, cause we would put their coaches on the telemark equipment also. Yeah. And the kids would really enjoy that because they could see that their coaches weren't as good skiers as I'll they suck too. <laughs> That's right. And, and the coaches were like four minutes long. Are you kidding me? That's a long race. I mean, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare now that you get a four-minute classic. Right. I think the longest classics now are like two thirty. Are they okay? Yeah. Like winter time is generally around two thirty. The long one would be two forty-five. Okay. But most tend to be like winning time around two minutes ten, two minutes twenty. Right. Long enough. Yeah. My my first classic in Tamarack, Idaho was was four minutes wow that was that was so hard oh yeah but like, here's another example of how time has changed telemark we raced world cup 2008 a classic started from the top we raced there back in 2018 and everything was like moved down like the classic start was the sprint start the sprint start in 2008 or 2008 was the classic start and this the parallel start was like way further down. Right. It was already halfway through the sprint race. Right. Like the races have definitely gotten much shorter. Yeah. I mean, it's much safer because you're not at the end of the race going 60 kilometers an hour on a completely empty tank. Right. And you can push a lot harder. You don't have to save anything. You can give gas. Okay. No, no, keep, keep, say what you're going to say. Well, I was going to say there was that point a couple of years ago because we have free heels, as the athletes were coming to the finish line, they were actually diving with their gear on, yeah. right? To, to get yeah, fast especially time. especially in the parallel. Yes, exactly. So anyway, we mentioned all the disciplines now, so i got to finish. Yes. The sprint is exactly like the classic. GS, jump, GS, 360, skate, just shorter, and two runs. Right. So your sprint runs anywhere from like 50 seconds to a minute 30. So definitely a compact event. Right. And again, that'll be like 20 seconds of skating. Right. And that, that's what we were promoting for the Olympics. Yeah. And that would have been. It's the, it's the easiest event to run. Yeah. And, and it's not unlike I could see it being in the field or in, in a venue like the moguls. Yeah, it doesn't take very much. No. So like a, like a slalom hill, an alpine slalom hill, yeah. you need less than that to run a sprint. Right. Or exactly a slalom hill. Yeah, it's we should really easy to take up a lot of space. Yeah, we should get the Skippy yeah. report to get back on this telemark and uh, getting yeah. telemark in the Olympics. I think it's Andrew Clark. Andrew Clark, if you're listening to this, <laughs> we got to get uh, this back in the Olympics. Yeah, I think it's got to get first. It's just the, like the sport as a whole needs more people. Right. But that's but that's happening. Yeah. So it's it's wild. So I'm a, an administrator of the the tele, used Telemark Gear Exchange from Telemark Skier. Oh, are you? Yeah. 
So, I mean, all I do is just delete everything related to alpine skiing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And click yes, 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 yes. Approve, 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 approve. I, I do the but same then, thing on the Free Hill Life uh, Facebook page yeah. for Josh. <laughs> it's wild. But yeah. this, like, this year, I there were so many people requesting. Like last year, it was like we'd get like one or two a week. Right. And this year, I like during the ski season, like the two of us, Devin, Devin Wright, yeah. we approved each like five people a day. Right. All season long. So like people out there, the people know what's good for them and yeah. telemark is good for them. And I, I think, I think because of COVID, right? Like yeah. telemark skiing, well, that was the only way you could get into the back country back in the day. Yeah. You know, before Lots Alpine touring. To get back to the roots and yeah. wanted to try something new. They're like touring is fun, but, if I have to tour every day, I'm going to get bored. Exactly. So let's try something new. Let's whip out the teleports. Well, yeah, I know a lot of the people who have gotten into it around here. We have small hills where I live. Mm -hmm. My my hill closest where my girls grew up, 300 foot vert. But we've had uh, you know three boys in the snowboard 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 World Cup racing, and and two of them were in the Olympics. You know, on this little tiny hill, that's where they got started. But this is a common phenomenon. Yes. Like, you know, there's Buck Hill in the U.S. Yeah. It's in Minnesota. It's on the side of the interstate. And it's turned out some of the best skiers in the world, namely one Lindsay Vaughn. Right. And in Austria, uh, actually, like, if you go to a big ski resort, you yes. won't find anywhere people training. Right. They not, they're not there. That's correct. They're yeah. at, like, the hill in the city with a rope toe. Yeah. On some tiny little, like, slope in the city. And they're just... Exactly. You know what? We, we my buddies and I, we say that like Eastern skiers, sorry, Western people, but you can hit me later. We, we have shorter hills. And so that means the kids have more time in the gates and they're seeing their coaches more often than yeah. on. Yeah. Well, even at West, like Steamboat Springs, one of the best sport clubs in the United States for all disciplines. Right. They don't train at Steamboat. They train in Howlson Hill. The same thing. It's like 300 feet of vertical, right? And a and a drag lift, right? But they're training there instead of training on the big hill, yeah. Because they can get better quality on this little hill. Well, you know what? That's like near the cottage. I I love to ski Burke Mountain and the home of the Burke Mountain Ski Academy. And like, mm. there's this one one run that they all train on, and there's four courses set up, two side by side, yeah. and you know the the kids, the athletes start at the top, listen to the coach. There's a coach midway. They come down, talk to that coach, and then they back into the gates at the lower part. So there's there's yeah. like four courses on this one pitch. Lots of contact with coaches. Yep. That's what it's all about. Training volume, feedback, training volume. That's right. Yeah, even when we were doing stuff with uh, Telemark Ski Ontario, we would use uh, an app called Coach's Eye. And yep. it was like, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am. And I would even use that in my in my school, like coach high jump. That was my main thing. And one year I had a girl uh, not performing as well as she did the year before, and I had her stuff saved. So then I, I filmed her the second year, and I said, check this out. And you can put the, the films side by side and progress them and move them simultaneously. And so I was able to describe to her what was going on. And I said, what is the difference between last year and this year? And she goes, I stopped doing gymnastics this year. And she's 14 years old. So at that age, stopping doing a sport that was good for her body affected her performance. This is actually a big topic in, in motor learning is, is self-feedback. Right. So like just by you showing her a video, yes, she can like already learn what's different, even if she doesn't see what was different before. You know, just by seeing it, That's right. she can do something about it. Yeah. And if you're doing that during the training, yeah. you know, in between jumps or in between runs, yes, you you can make like meaningful changes in, in motor patterns by seeing it. Or even even better is if you see it live. Exactly. Obviously, in skiing, it's not so possible. That's right. Yeah. It's and it, yeah, I, I've you been don't even using have to tell the athlete what to do. Yeah. They just watch it. Yeah. And at at your at your level. You should be able to watch your run and then self-diagnose it, make corrections, working at such yeah, I, a high ath uh, athletic level or being an elite athlete. 
I, you know, I tried to do that. Um, and it didn't get me so far, but there's, that's the other problem with that is that I only got that as feedback. Right. I never had a coach who was with me all the time. Yes. I get a coach like here, there, right. Once or twice a year. Right. And so I only ever got my own feedback. Right. And so I ingrained patterns that weren't necessarily fast. Right. They just felt good. Yes. And I maybe was looking for that. Right. So I saw what I wanted to see. Yes. And I ingrained that. So like if you watch some of my skiing from like 2012 to 2014. Right. It felt amazing. I was generating huge angles. I was, but I was sliding a lot before the gate. So I was like big stivet, you know, Ted Ligety yep. style, dragging my knuckle and then whoosh, big, you know, big changes in acceleration. So I was losing a lot of speed, then putting the skis in the fall line, speeding up, then slowing down, speeding up, slowing down. So I felt like this felt really good because I, it did. Right. And I felt like that was fast, but it really wasn't. Right. I always remember when we would have our training days here in Ontario and Mark Kinoshita, he would say, Keith, you need to be lighter on the skis. You need to unweight. And then one day we were videoing it and he showed me exactly what he meant because my heels weren't on the skis, like in that transition piece. Yeah. But I was like, dude, I'm 275 pounds. You're telling me to get lighter? How the heck do I get lighter? You know, until I yeah. saw what he was trying to say to me. So you always need to have that critical eye of somebody else who's yeah, knowledgeable. Exactly. In... Always, even if it's just like you send your video to a coach right. once a week and he gives you just a little bit of feedback. Yeah. It prevents that loop from just going on and on and on. Right. And, you know, Tanner Visnick. Yes. We, um, we trained and skied a lot together and especially we talked a lot to each other about our skiing. Right. It actually happened with both of us that we together accelerated this loop. We were both looking at things in each other's skiing, trying yes. to emulate them. Yes. And we both latched on to the wrong things. Oh, geez. So we were both like getting more and more extreme in yes. these, you know, big angles, big sliding, big acceleration. And it, both of us didn't really work. Right. It was really hard for us to actually like break this loop. Right. It was interesting in my my learning because I, I was always a Nordic skier and then I got into telemark and then racing and that sort of stuff. And, you know, people want to make the hard charge to the gate and then turn and they make that Z sort of turn and you just lose all your speed. And then it wasn't until a little later working with our national coach, it's like, well, you know what, you can take a longer, smoother way around and it can be faster. Yeah. Line choice at ski racing is so, so complex. Right. There's so many different variables and in theory, it's really easy. Yes. You make your center of mass, take the shortest line. Right. You do that, you win. You ski really straight between the gates and then you carve a really pure, really tiny turn. Right. And it's, that's, that's all it is. Yeah. It's whoever can do that the best, but it's, so much more complex than that because you have to perfectly carve that little turn. Correct. It can't be slid, but you know, to carve this perfect little turn, you know, you've, you've got to nail, okay, when do I put the edge up? How high do I put the edge up? How hard do I push on it? If you push too hard, you create too much friction right? and you slow down. Right. And how, how, how long do you hold it? When do you release? Yes. How slippy is it? Is it really grippy? Is it not so grippy? What happened before? Am I trying to gain time? Am I trying to lose? I mean, of course, you know, ski racing, you don't actually gain time. You only lose time. Just like a wild. I've been working now at, at Red Bull. We also work a lot with motorsports, obviously, Formula One, MotoGP, yes. all the different classes. Yeah. And having conversations with these athletes, I'm like, man, ski racing and motorcycle riding are the same. Well, I have a friend who's a retired race car driver. He's a race coach. Um, he, uh, do you know this guy named Jeff Gordon out of the U S <laughs> so, like yeah. So when he made, made the move from the world of outlaws, which are like, you know, souped up go-karts really yeah. 
dirt off, you know, dirt track go-karts to cars. He came up to uh, Mossport and, and my friend Jeff coached him in making the transition to cars and that sort of stuff. So a lot of the times Jeff and I have these conversations and he's one of the earlier guests on the Skippy Report here. And we realized a lot of that stuff, that ski racing and auto racing, motorcycle racing, it's it's all similar, taking the lines and finding the apex and... You know, how do you manage? How, how much do I break? When do I break? Exactly. What line am I taking? Am I on a you know qualifying lap? Am I going all out? Am I just trying to maintain like, you know, long run speed? Oh, the, the interplay is like, it's the same. It is. The same ideas. Yeah. It, you know what would be interesting is it'd probably be an easy transition for us to cars mm. than the auto athletes to come ski. But it would be fun to so have them come and ski. Involved in skiing. You know, you, in, in, in a car, the interaction between the ground yep. and the thing doing the turning is just you controlling something. That's right. I think the transition would be a lot easier for a motorcycle rider to skis because the interaction is then them controlling the bike. Right. We control the ski. It's not you just turning the wheel. Yeah. You know, on the bike, they've got to sift their center of mass. Well, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yes. Like all of this, how to to turn and how to feel the turn and how there's feed. It's a two-way feedback loop. That's right. You you put feedback into the bike. The bike gives you feedback. You interpret that. You give it new feedback. And that, that just doesn't exist so much in a car. Yeah. But it does in skis, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's that's kind of cool. And and I was thinking when you were talking about the turns and and all that sort of stuff, I know I can ski all day long. And hopefully near the end of the day I get one of those runs it's like, yep, those were all good turns. That was a really great run. I'm done. Yeah, we I ski, I'm like a total morning skier. Are you? I ski five or six runs and at 11:30 I'm like eat some lunch. Done. Right. But we definitely have different skiing styles. Like for me, if the first, if the fifth turn sucks, then I'm, yeah, it's over. Oh, really? I have, Pull the I, plug. I that there won't be a good turn in that day. Oh, no. See, I'm very analytical. I ski lots of times with my shadow and, yeah. and I'm always working on stuff. I was talking, I don't know if you know, uh, the ski athlete Megan Kelly, she's out in Lake Tahoe. She was in the movie Our Family yeah. with uh, Ty Dayberry. Megan Kelly, right? Megan Kelly Tellys? Yes. Yeah. And, and we we're, were talking about that sort of thing, you know, about she grew up in the Midwest in Detroit and then skied at Mount Brighton, which is like our Mount Kirby. And, mm-hmm. you know, just always working to get better. And even I don't race anymore, but there's a lot of times when I'm skiing, I'm just still analyzing my turns. Yeah. I mean, I think I've analyzed enough of my turns that that there's a, it's a binary system. Okay. So of course, you know, it, I would say it's one day a season where I have the fifth turn and I'm like, no, nothing's <laughs> going to happen today. But the rest of the time, you know, it's like that, you know, just trying to find the, find the good feeling, find the perfect turn. Yeah. I think in Telemark, this is, this is why I think I love Telemark is that no two turns ever feel the same. Exactly. And I don't think I will ever make the perfect Telemark turn. Right. It's the quest. Always always the quest. But I will say like when you nail a turn, especially like on a, on the race skis. Yeah. When you lay it over and you get the right feedback and the snow is right. Oh, there's one day in my head that I will never, ever forget. It's at Cannon. You know Profile? The yes. Run Profile yep. Cannon? Yeah. You see it when you drive up. It's this big yep. scar yeah. in the middle. And Profile, the slope just goes like this. It just gets steeper and steeper and steeper and steeper. And it's long. It's straight. And it has the same fall line the whole way. There's no double. Right. There was one day. It's like crystal clear, minus 10 degrees perfect New Hampshire weather, bulletproof ice. And I think I made 40 turns 
They were the most consistent 40 turns of my life. Down really? Profile. Early morning, you know, nobody there. Yes. I can still feel like hip, elbow, forearm in the snow every turn. Wow. Yeah, those those are the days that the East Coast skiers dream of, right? We're not so much of the deep pow and choking on powder and that sort of stuff. I don't know. I've skied a lot of powder. I've skied a lot of groomer. I got to say, I do love a powder day, but a good day of groomers I'll take every time. Right. That's love awesome. Love speed. Wow, that's why you raced, man. <laughs> true. That is true. Yeah. I also would say that's why I never won any World Cups because I like turning too much. I remember out skiing with our school this one time and our principal was with us and he like counts his turns all the way down the slope. So we came down this one slope and he goes, I did 53 turns. And I was like, uh, uh, I think I might have done 10. And then this old guy who's a telemark skier, he goes, I did two. <laughs> yeah, so it was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can picture it. Yeah, he's got a big beard. He's not wearing a helmet. He's wearing a hat. Yep. Two, you know, ear flakes. It's got long strings, and they're tied under his chin. Yes, exactly. And you forgot the most important thing, knee pads on the outside of his coveralls. He was skiing in coveralls. There's a guy who raced World Cup when I started. His name is Brian Huntsberger. Uh-huh. From Montana. And he didn't have, you know, training shorts? Yes. He didn't have training shorts. He actually had like knee length lederhosen. Really? Not like Austrian or yeah. traditional lederhosen. They were from Alaska. They were seal lederhosen. No way. Yeah. But he was unbelievably like this. He like be at the start warming up, but he's like like a home knit sweater. You know, the kind where the pattern's supposed to be straight, but it goes in like three different directions. Yes. They're like warming up. And you guys are going, who's this guy in the bush from the bush, right? Yeah. Wild. <laughs> totally wild. That, that was like me growing up. I spent all my life playing basketball. And when I grew up in Quebec, we played for this little our town, Saint Hubert, and they gave us basketball tops with a number. That was it. Nobody knew who we were. And I tell you, we were looking pretty welfare and uh everybody made fun of us but you know what we came third in the province <laughs> Here's what you look like. yeah what you exactly do. yeah well you know what this has been fun it's getting late i guess must be like close to nine fifteen in salzburg it is it is well yeah, on the couch out there yeah. oh okay well I'll, I'll let you go i want to thank you so much for doing this this is lots of fun that was great, Keith. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing some of your posts again on Instagram and stuff. And I think yeah, it's see if I can get back in the World Cup in a different form next year. Oh yeah, that would athletes. Yeah, that would be kind of that would be cool. All right, well, thanks a lot, Corey. Take it easy, and when you talk to your parents, tell them I said hi. Will do. It was a pleasure. Hey, crew, thanks a lot for tuning in to this episode of the Skippy Report with Corey Snyder, formerly of the U.S. Telemark Ski Team and now of Red Bull. Anyways, don't forget to check back in uh, 10 days uh, for another episode of the Skippy Report.